Thanks for joining us today at the Vine Church. We're one church with two locations and reaching around the world with the help of our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ. If you'd like to partner with us in doing that, you can share this service with others and give by clicking the link below. For now, prepare your heart for some incredible worship and an inspiring message. You have come. You have come. We have found love everlasting. Now alive, know your freedom. Never ending. You. Darkness tries to roll over my bones when sorrow comes to steal. 
the joy out when brokenness and pain is all I know. Oh, I won't be shaken. No, I won't be shaken. Sing this with me. Cause my fear doesn't stand a chance when I'm standing in your love. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I'm I'm not afraid to leave my past behind. No, I won't be shaken. No, I won't be shaken.
You're the first thought on my mind In the moments where you go unnoticed In the ordinary day to day Countless miracles of life around us Point like arrows to your name How are you, church? You good? How many of you are ready for a nap after that bumper video? Yeah? Um, it's good stuff. Uh, it's great to be with you guys uh, today. For those of you that I haven't met yet, my name is David Walters. I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here at the Vine Church, and it's a privilege to be with you in week two of our series on worship, where we're trying to discover a true um, essence and definition of what worship is. There's a lot of confusion about what that is. And so over the uh, three weeks in this series, we're trying to clear up that confusion. Today, we're going to discover uh, that worship is uh, con- not confined to a posture. Um, last week, we talked about how worship was not confined to a place. It's not confined to a time, a one-hour segment of your day, your schedule. It's not confined to a portion of a worship service where we sing or maybe not sing, depending on how well your vocal cords are, um, but where worship is, is in all places at all times. It's a lifestyle. And today, we're going to discover that worship takes place through our posture and our, pos- our posture posture, I'll say it right, um, actually reflects our perspective of God. Um, There's been a lot of studies about how our posture reflects our perspective. Now, um, you don't need studies and scientific studies to do that if you've been married, especially guys, right? Because you know that posture reflects a perspective of your wife. She can say one thing, but her body's saying something completely different. Can I get an amen, guys, right? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about there. But scientists actually have done a lot of study on the connection between, between posture and perspective and how that per inward uh, perspective can change because of posture. The way that they've studied it the most is through um, the posture that people take depending on whether they win or lose in competition. Um, because there's certain postures that are prevalent with both a victory and a loss. And so um, what would be a descriptor of a posture that a person takes if they lose a competition? There's a couple of signs. One is that their chin goes down and that their shoulders slump, right? And so this is the posture, chin goes down, shoulders slump. Um, I've actually discovered coaching recreational basketball that there's a third posture that people take um, when they are losing, and that is noodle arms. Have you ever seen noodle arms? This is what happens when you coach 11 and 12-year-olds, like I have been doing over the, the, the past couple of months in basketball. I'm currently coaching an all-star basketball team, uh, which I'm glad to report. We were 3-0 and this weekend, one Friday, and then two games yesterday. So yeah, 915 service, they clap for that. I mean, it's kind of too late, 11 o'clockers. But anyway, so, um, but, but yesterday, I actually had to take out a kid because his attitude, I always tell, like, there's two things you can control. You could control your attitude and your effort. And uh, there was some on-the-court attitude issues. So I took one of the players out. And so the head went down, the shoulders went down, and then noodle arms happened. And it was like this. It was like noodle arms. You know, and it was like, that's noodle arms. So that's the posture that somebody takes with a perspective of not being happy about being taken out of the game. So there's the chin goes down, the the shoulders kind of slump, but then there's also a posture for victory. What's the posture for victory? Arms go up. And so what you see is that when people win 
and there's a victory, their arms go up in victory formation. We'll just call this a victory formation. Their arms go up. Now, what's interesting is that you see that happen from the perspective standpoint, but the scientists have also discovered that our posture can actually change our perception as well. There's actually a physiological change that can take place in our bodies by our posture. And so we can actually control our perspective and the way that we feel by the postures that we take. So just to experiment this morning, I'd like for all of you to stand up and sit down. No, just stand up. And, um, and then I want you just to take that victory posture. Just put it up, arms up like this. You know, you got your fist, pump it out. Arms locked, guys. No, no halfways there. And then like if you're a former cheerleader, you want to give it a pump, you know, you can do that too. I don't know what that's called. Just make sure your thumbs are tucked appropriately right there. So just hold them up there. Hold them up there. And so scientists have discovered that if you'll hold this posture for two minutes, that you'll actually feel better and you will feel victorious because the posture is changing the way that you feel on the inside. And so some of you right now, you're feeling better about your day. Uh, some of you right now, you're feeling victorious. Some of you are just thinking, I need to work out more because my shoulders are starting to shake. So, hey, so you can put your arms down. Y'all give each other a hand for doing that and y'all can sit down. How many, wow, that was a quick applause, but <laughs> how many of you feel better from that? Yeah, that's what happens with our posture because our posture is connected to our perception and it goes both ways. And what we're gonna discover today is that the same is true of our worship. Our posture when it comes to worship actually is a reflection of our perception and also we can change our perception by changing our posture. I'm gonna show you that in just a few uh, moments. But first I wanna just kinda um, say that there's, there's all kinds of physical expressions when it comes to worship. I, I've been in the back of the room enough times to know that like everybody kinda worships differently. Um, at those of us that are on the front row, we're maybe a little bit more expressive and so we need a little bit more space for ourselves in that. Uh, some of you, you're perfectly content being in the back, you know, you know just kinda standing there still. Um, Pedro, our student pastor, he has confessed that um, his, his favorite posture is um, his hands in his pockets. Um, although the first time he was saying that, he actually made a mistake. And instead of saying, um, I like to worship with my hands in my pockets, he said, I like to worship with my hands in my pants. Not a, not a good way to start <laughs> things off. But, um, but the reason that he said that is because he doesn't want to get the worship leader offbeat. So he just doesn't clap at all because he's like so afraid he's going to get the worship leader offbeat. So he's going to the box. So there are all kinds of postures in worship. In fact, a couple of years ago, our staff and some of our leaders went to a leadership conference called Catalyst Conference. And there were some hosts for the Catalyst Conference. They were a comedian uh, duo named Tripp and Tyler um, because their names are Tripp and Tyler. And um, often they would make pre-make videos that they would show that kind of make fun of some things in Christian culture because if you're a Christian, you should make fun of yourself. I mean, there are a lot of weird things that we do, right? And so they made fun of some things. And one of the things that they made fun of in one of their videos called God's Bods is the way that we worship expressively. And so um, before we kind of jump into what the Bible says about the posture of worship, let's take a look at what Tripp and Taylor, uh, Tyler say about the way that we worship. Let's take a look. Tripp? Yeah. You thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Tyler. Let's enter into a time of worship. Starting at the bottom with the Lutheran praise. This is Lutheran praise, by the way. Okay, now let's walk in place a little bit. How about Baptist praise? Okay, raise those palms a little bit higher, just in front of your face. This is hard. The non-denom. All right, let's go even higher, one hand up, the other one banging against the chest. 
Okay, now you're doing the guy in the front row of a non-denominational church. I am really feeling this. This is hard. Okay, get ready to put that other hand in the air. Sway a little bit. The charismatic. Let's bow out. Feel free to give multiples of 10. I'm gonna bow out on this. Take it home, Tyler. Jump up and down. Okay. Pentecostal. Yes. Did any of you find yourself in that video? I mean, how many of you are like the mainline, like Lutheran people? You're just like, here, yeah, you're right here. How many of you are like me? Apparently, I thought we were Methodists, but maybe we're non-denom because I'm in the front row and this is what I do. Um, How many of you are like Gus and this is what you do during worship? Like, you're just like, this is, this is your posture. This is what you do. Anybody full Pentecostal you spin? And so you stay in the back? Anybody? Okay. Yeah, so we kind of make fun of that. But what's interesting really is that all of the words that are in the Bible that we translate as worship come from their original languages in a form of posture. So what we translate as worship, when you go back to the language of origin, it's actually a language of posture. And what we want to do in this series is going to give us a good biblical understanding of worship. So in order to do that, we need to take a look at the postures that are presented in worship. And so if you brought your Bibles or you've got a Bible app, I want to invite you to go with me to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22 is where uh, the word worship shows up in the Bible for the first time. And so just a good reference point for you, maybe you're studying the Bible and you see a word or maybe there's a topic or a subject and you want to know more about it. One of the best things that you can do, in fact, I want to encourage you, is to go to the first time that that word is used in the Bible and study the context of it because that's what uh, faithful God followers in the Old Testament would do. They would go to the first usage of that word in the Bible, in the scriptures, and then they would use that as a way of understanding the context for it. So the first time... Uh, The 180 uh, times that the word worship is used in scripture is found in Genesis chapter 22, verse 5. And just to give you a little bit of context here, we've got a moment uh, that takes place between a father and a son. The name of the father is Abraham. Um, Father Abraham had many sons, and and many sons had Father Abraham, and I'm one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. Um, That Father Abraham guy, if you're not familiar with church, this is your first time in church, this is your first time at the Vine. Um, and, and you're not familiar, um, Abraham um, was a guy who he and his wife named Sarah, they were unable to have children. They were much older in life. And then um, God spoke to Abraham in Abraham's faithfulness and said um, that he wanted to make a covenant with, with Abraham. It's kind of like a contract. It's a little bit different in that in a covenant, there's a greater party and a lesser party. And basically what Abraham said is, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Um, and then Abraham's like, well, I don't have any kids. And they're up, up, in, up in age, like, you know, like really old, like beyond, like, anyway, um, they're really old. And so, um, and so he's like, how's this going to be? And he says, um, God gives him three promises. And what he says in those three promises is that um, I will make you a great nation, meaning that he will have a child. I'll make you a great nation. You will, um, you will occupy a, a land that you don't currently occupy. And then out of your um, offspring, there will be a blessing to all the nations. And, and when you follow that out far enough, that blessing to all the nations is Jesus. And, and so um, this is that guy. Uh, the problem is he doesn't have a child. And then eventually um, and, uh, his wife gets pregnant and they give birth at about the age of 100. So he's 100 years old, first child, first son. And, um, and then God calls Abraham to, to sacrifice 
his son Isaac, which just seems a little strange. And if you're here in church for the very first time, you're like, I knew it. I shouldn't have gone to church. That sounds really weird. I get it. I totally get it. But don't check out. Um, because back in those days, there was this polyistic kind of uh, polytheistic, like pagan religion where people would sacrifice their, their first child. And so it really culturally, it's, it's way out of norm now, sort of, um, in a weird, anyway, that's another sermon for another day. But um, like, but culturally back then it was, it was, it was prevalent. That's what people did. And so it wasn't completely odd for Abraham, but nevertheless, um, he's called to, to sacrifice his, his first son. And um, what we learn later in scripture after Genesis 2 in the New Testament is that the only reason that Abraham was willing to go through that is because of two things, that Abraham either believed, one, that God would provide a substitute sacrifice, or two, that God would raise his son back from the dead. So it's the only reason that we know that he was willing to go through this, that, that God would provide a substitute sacrifice or that God would raise his son back from the dead. So it leads us to the first mention of the word worship in scripture. And it's found in verse five of Genesis chapter 22. Then Abraham said to these young men who had gone with them to this sacrifice, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and what church? worship. We'll go over there and worship and come again to you. And so when they go over there to worship, the first time we see the word show up, that worship was for him to place his son on an altar, which is a place of sacrifice and sacrifice his son. And so the first time that the word worship is used in scripture, the context of it is around sacrifice, that we would put something on an altar and that we would sacrifice it there. And so worship in definition and context biblically is it's sacrifice. It's giving things over to God and sacrificing things to God. And, and the reason that we wanted to camp out in this series for just a few weeks is to kind of correct what's maybe happening culturally among us where, where we have turned worship into what God does for us. When worship at its heart is what, what we do for God because of what God has done for us. But I mean, we, we've got worship like all kind of twisted. And I, I don't know like how we got here. I just know that we're here. I, I know that what, what we define as worship is where I can go, where I can get my fix, where I can get my style, whether it's traditional or whether it's contemporary or it's modern or whatever they want to call the vine, I don't know. You know, like where um, it's large and a large building with like ancient kind of cathedral type setting, stained glass windows, or it's in a retail space because you're a new church and you got to get somewhere, you know, or, you know, it, it, we've made worship about us. And so we worship where we have preference. And, and the biblical understanding of worship is that we sacrifice. We actually sacrifice our preferences for God and God's glory. And here's a great example of that, where you have a guy who's 100 years old who has a son, a first son, first child, and he's told that he's gonna birth a nation and God's calling him to sacrifice that. His preference is not gonna be to sacrifice his son. But yet the first worship service took place on a mountain where an altar was made and where a son was ready to be sacrificed. But now, God seeing that he was faithful withholds him from sacrificing his son and provides a substitute for him just as Abraham believed that he would. 
And so our understanding of worship at the heart is that it's sacrificial, that, it, that it's something that we offer to God. But what's interesting is this is not the first time that the Hebrew word that's translated into worship was used in Scripture. That's actually found four chapters ahead of that. So if you still have your Bibles app, if you want to flip back to Genesis chapter 18, or you got your Bible app out, uh, maybe the version out, um, go back to Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 and 2. This is the first time that we see the word that was used to translate as worship show up and check out what it's translated as. So Genesis chapter 18, verses one and two, this is still about Abraham and God's conversation with him. The Lord appeared to him, that's Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and what? Bowed. He ran from the tent door to meet them and he bowed himself to the earth. So, so that word bow in Hebrew is shakah. Everybody say shakah. Very good. Y'all did a great job on that. It's a Hebrew word shakah. It, it literally means to bow or to be pressed down. Uh, one of the cool things about the Hebrew language is that um, the Hebrew letters um, all have like significant meaning. And so, and the way the Hebrew language works is they kind of don't work off of vowels when they write, they work off the consonants. And so in this, um, in this word, what we actually have is, is three Hebrew letters. And each Hebrew letter has a different meaning. And we, we put the picture of the Hebrew letters up there so that you can kind of see how the, even in their, their drawing and their writing, it took on significance. So the, the three Hebrew letters that make up shakal are um, our first shin. That's what we would translate as an S in Hebrew language. And it literally means teeth, but it also means to press. And so you see kind of the teeth that are at the top of this, all the dental hygienists and dentists that we have in the room. You're happy right now that there's Hebrew. Anyway, so you got teeth and you've got pressed down. It has double meaning, teeth and to be pressed down. The, the, the second letter in that word is kaf or the K, that's where we get the K sound. And that means refuge, and it means to rest. And so you'll see that there's a little bit of shelter there where you can find rest and refuge. The last letter of the word shakal is hey or hey. Uh, but that's the H sound that we get in there. And the literal meaning of hey is arms extended, and it means to behold. So arms extended, and it means to behold. And so the first word that is translated into our language as worship, at its literal meaning is a posture of being pressed down, of being bowed down or flat on your face so that you can behold and so that you can rest. And so if we wanna get back to like this true understanding of worship, and we already know because of last week, and if you weren't with us, you can check out our service online. We already know that worship's not confined to a place and a thing that you do on Sunday mornings. But what we learned from this is that the first understanding we should have of worship is that we would come and we would bow ourselves down or we would come and get flat on our face because we recognize the presence of God and it is in the presence of God where we find rest. Um, 
a, a few years ago, God called me to um, a 40-day fast. And, and I share that with you, not to, to, um, to boast about that at all. I, I just, uh, in fact, there's not a whole lot to boast about when you fast for 40 days. But, um, but one of the greatest lessons that I learned in that 40-day fast was um, of, of what posture meant with my time with the Lord. Um, towards the end of, towards the second half of that 40-day fast, um, I was just super tired. And so I'd end up going to sleep like really early at night. I was driving Liz crazy because she's a night owl and her love language is quality time. She's like, I hate your fast, you know, and like I'd go to bed early. Uh, but going to bed early, I'd wake up like super early. I'd wake up like every night, like three or four in the morning. And so what that meant is that I would have like an extended um, time with the Lord of prayer time and Bible study. And um, I'm not saying that to be super like spiritual because like that's not my normal and that's not normal now. Um, I wish it was, but it's just not. And so, um, but I was having like two, three hours of quiet time with God. And um, what, what I would do before then is I would sit at my office desk with my chair, with my Bible open, with my music going and, and any other book that I was reading, I would sit there or I would sit on my couch. Um, but what happened during that, that fasting period is because it was such a long period of time that I actually found more comfort in laying down on my office floor with my Bible, with my book, with my music going, my journal. And, and so I would lay down, I would shaka, I would be pressed down. And in, um, in that posture, in that posture, I was able to capture something in that season that I'd never experienced before. And that was truly an understanding of the presence of God and able to discover something that I needed and that I longed for and that the human heart longs for, and that's rest. And I found it only in the presence of God. And what I also found that I didn't want to find is that while I was in that season of being um, bowed down, shakal, before the Lord, is that the Lord was pressing some things out of me that didn't need to be there. Like literally pressing down on me. And, and, and my friends would be like, hey, what cool thing is God doing in you? And I was like, he's convicting me of a bunch of sin. And they're like, oh. And I was like, yeah, exactly. I, I called it the glorious beatdown period of my life. It was like, it was amazing. It was the, it was the pressing, it, it was where God was refining me. But as he would reveal uncovered and, and hidden sin, unconfessed sin, like I was able to behold rest. And I found it on my face. Maybe that was the first time that I ever worshiped in my life. I'm not sure. But worship is about our posture, being pressed down in the presence of God, beholding the presence of God, and there we will find rest. Uh, the second Hebrew word that gets translated into worship is barak. Everybody say barak. Yeah, you should be familiar with that. We had eight years of saying that, okay? And so um, in Hebrew, that word means to kneel. Literally, it means to kneel down. It, it also means to bless. And so to kneel is to take a posture of humility, and to bless is to recognize that there's greatness, and what I think about it is interesting, and we'll just be a short period um, with this Hebrew word, is that when you were taught, maybe growing up, about the posture to pray for, what did it, what did it entail? You got to bow your head, right? Bow your head. And, so, and then what do you do with your hands? Clasp them like this, clap, do this, or you do this, right? And so if you're a cheerleader, you do this. You know, if like you're holy, you do this. And then if you just love to hold hands with people like you do this, right? You just hold hands with yourself. It's awesome. So you bow your heads, you take on some hand posture, and then what do you do? Like, if you want to be really holy, what do you do? You get down on your knees, right? You get down on your knees, right? And how many of you grew up in a, in a church that had like a picture of maybe Jesus in the front of the church, like stained glass window of Jesus? 
I mean, we got it wrong because he had like blonde hair and green eyes, and that is not what Jesus looked like at all. But, but maybe the best thing about that stained glass window was the posture they took. Because if he was praying, which maybe that was the posture, maybe that was the picture in the stained glass window, you know, he maybe had some, you know, picture of this, but, but he was probably kneeling because this is a posture of humility. It's a posture of submitting uh, oneself to the greatness of someone else. And then Jesus taught us that when we pray, we are to pray by saying, our Father, if you know it, come on, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed be, some of you are like, thy kingdom come. You know, anyway, but our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That word hallowed, it's a blessing. It's an adoration. Jesus taught us that, that we are to, in the posture of prayer, we are to humble ourselves and acknowledge God's greatness. And, and this is the posture that, that we're called to when it comes to worship, is that when we come before a great God, we humble ourselves. We kneel down, we barak, we kneel down, and then we bless. We just, we just bless God. And, and the Hebrew people got it right because like all their prayers were blessings for God. They didn't ask God to bless their food. They blessed God for the food that they were given. Did y'all know that? Hebrew people, they don't say, God, would you bless the food to the nourishment of our bodies? Well, how's God going to bless some fat, fatties? Anyway, um, like they would say, God, we bless you for being the provider of this food. We bless you because you gave us taste buds. We bless you. And everything was a blessing. Guys, when, when, when um, Hebrew people would see a beautiful woman, they would say, bless you, Lord, for the creator of beautiful things. That's, they were just always blessing God. This was the posture. It was humility. It was to recognize there's somebody that's greater and they're submitting to that and that they're blessing from that. The third Hebrew word that gets translated as worship is yadah. Everybody say yadah. And yadah, um, it, it literally means to extend the hands as surrender to extend the hands as surrender. Extend the hands as surrender. And it also means to give thanks. To extend the hands as surrender and to give thanks. And so worship in Yalda means to extend hands or to worship as surrender. And we surrender because of thanks. Um, one, of the, one of the greatest ways that I can see this play out in uh, my family's life is when my kids get something as a gift, but then they're not willing to share that with other people. And, and this always baffles me. I've got one, one of my um, kids, uh, one of my four kids who will remain nameless, um, but she, um, <laughs> she is like, she, she will type fist everything that is given to her. You know, she could be just given a gift and then somebody says, hey, can I have some of that? And she's like, mm, you know, like, and her posture is what? Like type fist, bring it in close. If you can put your fist in your, you know, pockets to protect them, you'll do that. Um, and so, like, and if you can't put your fist in your pocket, maybe it's time to move from the skinny jeans to something else. So anyway, you know, so like, so try to protect them because you want to hold on to this. But one of the things that I do to this one particular child of mine, when she's like refusing to share, is I just look at her and I just do this. Because your posture can communicate a perspective. And this is release it. Release it. And most of the stuff that she has, she did not earn. She did not go out and buy. Maybe she didn't even deserve it. And so when I get her to, to be thankful to extend her hand and her arms to release it, I often tell her it's only by releasing that you can get more. 
You can't get more like this. You can only get more like this. And why would you do this unless you knew that what you got, you didn't deserve, you didn't earn, and that God provided it in the first place? So to, to extend the hands and surrender is, is also a way of saying, God, I want more. Like, I recognize that you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. I'm thankful for everything that you've given me. I want to surrender to you and to your will, and I want more, whatever that is. And guys, I want to tell you all the first time that I ever raised my hands in worship. Not because I think everybody should raise their hands in worship. I just want to tell you this story. So I was a youth pastor, started working in the 90s, and I did what was probably now probably not the coolest youth pastor move. I took um, my youth group to a Carmen concert. Does anybody know who Carmen is? Like, anybody know who Carmen is? I mean, he's one of the cheesiest Christian music guys that has ever existed. In fact, his latest album's like, in fact, his latest album, like he, like, he started rapping in every song, and like, there's certain white dudes that should not rap, all right? And so, like, he's one of them. If you're in your 50s, just stop. Don't do it anymore. Like, if you're in your 20s, maybe you could pull it off, but not him. And um, so, I took the kids to a concert down at Georgia Dome. That's how old it was. And uh, we go down there, and we're in this concert, and um, I don't know what it was. Like, I had been around, like, even crazy charismatics my whole life, and so they were like, you know, like wild and expressive in worship, but I never raised my hands. I never raised my hands. Um, and we're in there in the Georgia Dome, and it's dark. Maybe that's what it was. But I was like, I just felt like God was saying, raise your hands. And I was like, oh. You know, and as you get one of those feelings, and you're like, I don't want to do it. So I was kind of like, noodle arm. No, God. You know, like, uh. But like God was saying, like, raise your hands. And I didn't know what to do. Like, I didn't know, like, if it's like a, you know, if it's like a punch thing. So I'm like, I don't know what to do with my hands, you know, like Ricky Bob. You know, so like, anyway, so like, finally, Finally, I'm just like, okay, all right, I'm in. And I close my eyes so they just don't know what's going on around me, right? So that's one reason to close your eyes and worship because you just don't care, you know? And so it's like, all right. And so I go. And you know what happened? Not a whole lot. <laughs> Not a, nothing crazy. Nothing crazy happened. I just knew that in that moment I was surrendering to obedience, but I did feel this. I did feel like there was something that was just kind of like coming over me. And that's all it was. Nothing like powerful. There wasn't like electricity or like, anything that was like, you know, like made me a super Christian or anything in that moment. It just felt like there was like a flood of like something that God was pouring into me. That's all. That's all. And, and what I learned in that moment is that, that worship is surrender. And, 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 and God could have said, hop on your left foot. And the question is, would I worship him with my surrender? Because I'm grateful for who he is and what he's done in my life. And that's the question for us. The question is, do we recognize what God has done for us? And will we live in response to that? Not just in the songs that we sing, uh, sing uh, um, the, the prayers that we pray, the thing that we do and perform on Sunday, but will we take on in every posture of our life, this perspective of gratitude for what God has done? And if you're not sure what God has done for you, I wanna take you to Jesus who was the fulfillment of all of these postures in one person. And if you've got your Bibles and they're still out, I wanna invite you to go to me, with me to Philippians chapter two of the New Testament. Philippians chapter two is written by this church planter and he wrote the majority of the New Testament. His name was Paul and he's writing to this church at a place called Philippi. And, and he's encouraging them, listen, to have the same mindset of Jesus. He had the same mindset of Jesus. So the internal perspective, but listen, he describes the mindset of Jesus through the posture of Jesus. Check this out. 
Um, have this, uh, verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the what? Form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he what? Humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so what you see in the mindset of Jesus that is communicated through his posture is that though he was equal with God, he did not count equality as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he took a knee. He took a knee to humanity as a human being. God in the flesh took a knee and said, I consider you greater. And I'll submit to you as a servant to you. And then I love, I love the kneeling of Jesus because you find so many stories where Jesus just knelt down, where Jesus was kneeling down. And my favorite story is when Jesus knelt down and washed the feet of his disciples, which was something reserved for the lowest class of slaves. He, he, he knelt down and, and then he didn't stop there. He was pressed down. He was pressed down as he was laid on a cross and nails were driven in his hands and his feet. And then he was lifted up for the world to see how he was pressed down on that cross. And he did it so that your sins and my sins and the sins of the entire world could be placed on him so that we could receive forgiveness and be brought back into a right relationship with God. And then something happened three days later where Jesus comes out of the tomb with his arms raised. Like, <laughs> this is what God thinks of you. This is what God did for you. And so because Jesus did that for you, you are called to do that for Jesus. And Paul puts it another way in Romans chapter 12, verse one. We've got those words. Let's take a look at them. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God, what I just described, to present your bodies, to present your what? Bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your what? Spiritual worship. If you wanna worship spiritually, you present your bodies in the postures of your life to God as a living sacrifice. Now, a living sacrifice, this is the only time that phrase is used in all of the Bible. And you know why? Because every other sacrifice is a dead sacrifice. But you're a living sacrifice. And a living sacrifice is the only sacrifice that can be placed on an altar and get off, on an altar, uh, off of an altar and then get back on it and then get off of it. And what that means is that students, hey, listen, when you wake up tomorrow morning, you wake up and you place your life on the altar of God and you present yourself as a holy and living sacrifice to God. And then when you walk in the school, hey, you get up on the altar of your school and, and get up on the altar of your, your teachers and your classmates and you sacrifice yourselves to them as a reflection of what God has sacrificed for you. And, and in adults, what that means is that when you wake up tomorrow morning, you get up on the altar of the day of Monday. And I know we got an adult, you know, we got to do adulting things on Monday, but we do it. We get up on the altar of adulting. And, and then when we walk into our workplace, we get on the altar of the workplace and we sacrifice ourselves for our coworkers and our bosses and those that work for us. 
And then when we transition home and we walk through the doors of our homes after work and school is done, we get up on the altar of being a husband or a wife at this thing called marriage and we sacrifice ourselves for our spouse. If you're a parent, you get up on that altar called parenting. That's a big altar. You get up on that altar and you sacrifice yourself for your child. Children, you get on the altar of being a child and you obey and honor your parents. And then we just go throughout our day where we, because we're living sacrifices, we have to constantly get up on the altar and present ourselves to God. Why? Because our posture communicates our perspective. And maybe our posture will even change our perspective. So this morning, as we close our service, uh, we're going to close um, in kind of a special way. Uh, we're going to receive communion together as a church while the band comes and leads us in our last song. But we're going to receive communion a little bit differently than we normally do. In just a second, not now, in just a second, I'm going to ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to turn around. And I'm going to ask you to kneel on the ground and to, to kind of symbolically use your chair seat as an altar. Where you're going to kneel at the altar and you're, you're going to present yourself in a posture format as a sacrifice. This is symbolic. And then we're going to receive communion. If you're not familiar with communion, basically the, the night before Jesus died, he and his uh, followers were hanging out, and he took a piece of bread, he broke the bread, and he thanked God for the bread, gave it to his disciples, and he said, hey, this is my body that's given to you. And then in about 24 hours, he, he was nailed to the cross. He took a cup, and there was some wine in the cup. We've got juice, um, but it was wine. And he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Essentially, it was symbolic of how blood is a symbol of life and that his life was going to be poured out so that we could find life in him. And so in just a moment, our ushers are going to come as we're in this kneeling posture on the ground. Our ushers are going to come forward. They have some baskets filled with communion elements. There's a little cup that has a wafer on it and it has some juice in it. And they're going to say at the end of the row, what they're going to say to you is, this is the body and the blood of Jesus Christ given for you. And, um, and you're going to take one of those cups with that juice and that wafer, and you're going to hold on to it. But before you consume it, what we want you to do is go to the person that's next to you. And we want you to kneel next to them, and we want you to say to them, this is the body and this is the blood of Jesus Christ given for you. And if there's nobody next to you in that row and you're at the end of the row, then go to the person that's on the end of the row behind you and say that to them so that they can pass that basket along. Once you have not only received, but then also given, then you're welcome to, to consume the elements of, of juice in that wafer. And once you consume that, then, then you can remain in a kneeling position if your knees can handle it. Um, you can stay there. You can, you can get up, turn around, and worship with your hands in your pockets, um, with your hands raised, with your, you can, whatever. What I found is that most people at our early service just kind of stayed and, and sang as they were kneeling there, almost as a way of saying, hey, God, I got some stuff that I need to sacrifice. I got some stuff that I need to place on the altar. And maybe God will just say, hey, there's some things that you haven't sacrificed that you just need to put on the altar today. And so maybe that's you. You just stay in that posture and just keep bringing some things, keep confessing some things to God. Is everybody clear on kind of the instructions of how we're doing that? Yeah. You can nod if you are, okay? If you're not, just watch the people in front of you and maybe, maybe you'll figure it out. But is everybody also clear on God's perspective of you? He loves you. 
And he loves you so much that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. And through Jesus' death and his resurrection, he has made it possible for us to come into a right relationship with him, one that lasts for all of eternity and offers us a new and abundant life here on earth. And because of that, we can live in humility towards him and towards others because they reflect the image and the likeness of God. And so by having the same mindset of Jesus, bowing in humility before others, we are worshiping God.
Oh, everything 